welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Hello, so today it's round two uh, with Kelly Chalice. So actually I was saying to uh, Kelly before we started uh, recording that she was my first guest on the podcast. So I'm delighted to have her back. Um, Kelly is a consultant teacher um, for a literacy charity called BYT. Right? That's right, yeah, Driver Youth Trust is the um, you know, long title, but yeah. Wonderful. So uh, if you want to know more about um, Kelly, we discussed what you were doing before in the first episode. So yeah. I guess we can send people back to that episode. Um, but I thought I wanted to, to invite Kelly again because we've been discussing online, sort of offline, um, a lot of topics. And in particular, we've been taught, you, you've lent me quite, quite kindly, I'm still finishing a book. Um, from uh, sort of Margaret Mead and uh, Gregory Bateson's daughter, yeah. um, Mary Bateson. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just thought we would have a conversation today. So first of all, very warm welcome and thank you. Thank you, no, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, really good. So um, Kelly, well, let's start with that then. We, um, you lent me the book about um, well, Mary's book, um, which is about growing old, but yeah. growing old in our current society. And I guess my take from where I'm at in the book, growing old in a way that means you can still be involved very much with society and not be isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a sense, I guess, which we, we are seeing in our society, not just in the UK, France too, where old age is being hidden. Yeah. And you know, you just put people away and you don't really you just don't really involve yeah. them. Yeah. I think um the, the title of the book is Composing a Further Life. And I think that further life bit um I was quite intrigued by. And the bit that really sort of struck me, um, and we're probably not quite there yet, are we at that at that further life age? But it was that time between, you know, when you're sort of 60, 65 and 80, and you still have so much to give and you're not having to, you know, just sit in your chair because you've been working in a mine or doing something really hard wearing all your life. Um, And so retirement is such a different beast now. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you are then isolated or playing golf and just you know just sort of sitting with people of a similar age that there's so much more you could do um and I think that that sort of regeneration of that time and I've got a couple of friends who are that age and they are desperate to continue using expertise and then particularly teachers who do tend to retire quite early um they don't lose that passion um but it's where it goes and they're quite they feel that there's not many avenues for the apart from maybe reading at the local school they can't use that kind of knowledge and that huge amount of skills um and so I was really interested to kind of read about this middle life you know between middle age and old age there's another bit that we're not really maximizing it's kind of using their potential no that's true and also I just I also think that in terms of I was, I was having this conversation with, with my mum who turned 17 this summer. Right. My mum turned 70 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were having this conversation where I just said to both mum and dad, you know what's really important is that you don't let your world shrink. Yeah. Because it's so easy, right, at that age to just let your world slowly shrink because, yeah. you know, you, you, you stop your activities. And I think COVID, obviously, for... For their generation has been harder because you know my dad is having to be more careful because of his yeah. age. 
um, and then worried about him. Um, so, you know, they've restricted their activities and all of those things. And I'm just saying, okay, but you don't have, even if you don't have those structured activities anymore, what can you do to make sure that you're, you're still expanding, yeah. you know, your world? Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't reached that stage in the book, but does she say anything about that? I mean, I think that there's, she does talk a lot about the perception, doesn't she, in terms of what, how we perceive old age and maybe that we need to shift our ideas about it um, and not, not being burdensome or, you know, trouble or a, a duty that like children such as us have a duty of mm. care to our um, parents or grandparents even, but actually valuing them and their you know their kind of contribution and, and and shifting that thinking so I think often we're very quick to kind of use people in the nicest possible way but we are we're very you know we will use that time and we'll then have to feel like we pay it have to pay it back somehow because we've used all our babysitting allowance up um, rather than thinking you know, what, what's my mum getting out of that how much value is my mum getting out of having that young person and all their experience is loads actually and um, so I think just thinking about things in a different way and those interactions I think would just mean that we're much more open to the opportunities and and much more kind of yeah giving of our time but also seeing the value of other people's time in that sense. And I love that because it just means, you know, for me, he loves that systemic and looking at how yeah. we're not, we're not sort of living in little, you know, we're not islands and we're not living in silos, right? Yes. So, um, or in a vacuum. So this interaction is generating this and other people will be listening yeah. to it. And there's the same concept here, isn't it? That, um yeah, we all, we all, um, and she mentions it, or she started mentioning it as at where I'm at in the book, where there's this interconnection. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the connectedness. Yeah. So do you want to talk to that in terms of, you know, how, what your views are on that interconnection? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I started thinking of them as these invisible threads that are between different people or, um, and family, obviously those threads are quite thick and defined and things but then as you open up there are other threads and I think it's recognizing those um, threads go two ways that they're not purely for um, they don't necessarily have to purely serve a purpose you get something um, therefore you owe me something it's more about well okay this this opportunity means I've, I've you know bent a lot on this one person um, but it might come out in a couple of years that they then could come back to me. And um, I think that seeing things, I've started to sort of see things on two sides, you know, two sides of the same coin in terms of dependence and independence or um, positivity and negativity. And I don't think we can have anything without the other, and you know, happiness and sadness, you know, without a bit of sadness, you don't know what happiness is. So, I think starting to see things as much more dual in terms of what they are and how they work together, um, I think, you know, just helps see relationships in a much more connected light. So, so I always say to my students, but it's not great. Yeah. In the sense that, like you're saying, you've got a, the happiness and, and the sadness. But actually, most of the time, we're not either super happy or, or super sad. No, exactly. And it's a graded, you know, like a gradient of yeah. grades, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that relates to the constant drive for progress. And that, you know, that sort of we have to be better. We have to be faster. If you go to the gym, you want to be fitter. If, you know, all of these things are constantly driving forward and not recognizing actually, you know, if you can't deal with when you take a backward step or you can't handle the emotions with, if you are getting fatter and not fitter, 
then you're going to spiral and it's going to end up that you're going to find that those emotions almost impossible to deal with which is very hard to get out of so I think recognizing that there is you know there are days when you won't be the fittest person in the gym and you you know um and being able to be fine with that I think is it, we're missing that I think in some of our conversations especially with children especially at school I think there is a constant push for progress 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 um which puts so much pressure I think on on the kids to not recognize when they do have a slow day yeah. or they have got like you know, their mind is on other things and actually they yeah they didn't get that sunlight for once but they might get it right to them that's fine Yes, and it's you know it, in my research I talk about flourishing, flourishing, flourishing yeah. in a continuum, and the fact that it fluctuates. So again, yeah. the same that the black and white and the shades of grey. Yeah. Well, being we're not always either flourishing, flourishing, and sometimes yeah. we're just like I'm okay, just just average, you know, just. Um, but I guess it's how we respond to that because actually I think if you said to a child you know how are you feeling and they said yeah I'm okay I'm neither happy nor sad we might start being a bit concerned about them and think oh oh why are they not you know 100% happy all of the time um when actually it's fine to feel like that and it's okay to be a little bit down sometimes it's not depression it's not you know a severe mental health issue it's they're in the dumps, they're down in the dumps, you know, and that's it. So I think having these, again, we, we talked about a little bit in a different um, context, but having these extremes and almost feeling like we have to be at the extremes of our emotions all the time, um, I think just means that we're not dealing with the ebb and flow of emotions generally. And I think it, you know, there's so many places where I want to take because of what we are we are saying but to me you know going back to to the this progress with young people right when I look at for example my two boys who couldn't be more different one from another right if I didn't know what I know and if I hadn't done the research that I'm doing I could be potentially comparing my youngest to my eldest yeah and then looking at my youngest going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, and pushing him and pushing him to be like his brother, because to some extent, I mean, we it requires us as parents to be honest, and sometimes that's not really nice to yeah. actually just sort of because there's times when I look at him and I just think because he's a leaper, he just looks like nothing's happening, right? Nothing is happening, and then massively, yeah, okay where like at the start after COVID, I saw him starting reading and picking up books and he's really enjoying it. And when I said to him, right, um, apparently we need to record this, his words were, no, right. I don't record it because you're gonna take away the fun. Mm. Um, and, and to me, it just seems like we expect from our children that they are, and I've said, if you look at that, the, the grading, right? It's like, it, it literally like, look at a child and just things like, just like their height, you've got this yeah. graph that's sort of like, yeah. completely like linear. Yeah. When we know that their growth is all like squiggly and yeah. all over the place, right? Because yeah. also they're, they're not in a vacuum and they're influenced by environment and they're, everything else yeah yeah I mean we wouldn't consider measuring a child's feet would we and going oh your feet are a bit behind the rest of the class so you know you must be uh not being able to walk as well surely I mean we just wouldn't do it would we because we'd know that feet grow at different you know different rates um but we do measure academic ability like that mm -hmm. and we do get surprised when somebody isn't quite or, or you know had the same input in the class and think oh actually they're you know they're not doing quite as well um yeah I think I think the, the constant hunt for progress I think is um 
just has narrowed our view of education hugely and, and what what we measure becomes all important and almost defining rather than looking at the child and like you said seeing what kind of learner they are or how they progress or what they're you know what they're interested in because that doesn't come into it very often either does it just yeah, and, and this is what really interests as well those conversations because I was just thinking, well, you know, why do we not zoom cat? Why, you know, so my question for searching for book three and the question is, okay, what happens to the fun, loving, curious five-year-old? And how come they turn into the most unhappy teenagers in mm. Europe stroke the world? And you know, when I say that to people, they just go, oh, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? And I'm like, <laughs> we need to look at it. Yeah. You know, it's not just about it's sad. It's like, how well we created this as a society because we have, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I think, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think education, um, puts a lot of, and, and quite rightly, and I work for a literacy charity, so I know that literacy is extremely important if you're going to, you know, function in society, let alone getting a job or have a good, nice house and all of the other trappings that, that come with um, success, academic success. Um, but I think our, our measure of that literacy ability has got so narrow that it's turning kids off. <laughs> I mean, when I would work on a one-to-one, -one, um, I always made it my mission for them to get passionate about one element, whether it was writing, reading, nobody's ever been passionate about spelling, but uh, <laughs> interplay and then, you know, and the um, etymology, isn't it? Not entomology, always the most stuff. Um, but yeah, finding out about words or language, definitely. And, I would think, right, I've succeeded. If I got one or two children that suddenly were curious about language or reading or stories or writing, because for me, that meant that actually they might continue to, you know, look for avenues that would explore those interests without connecting it, perhaps, with English and with the English teaching. Yes. Um, because we it's very difficult to... GCSE syllabuses, what they're doing in SATs and, and, and things. But if you can get a child to start thinking about literacy, engaging with it and being interested, then hopefully that continues. And it's also it's talking about like getting earlier on about like how do we get young people to um, to explore things they like. Yeah. And it, the other, I was having a conversation with a friend earlier on, and I was saying to her, you know, what I'm curious about is that if you look at the, the going back to my five-year-old, so if I think about the, my two boys who grew up in a, in a household with two languages, yeah. um, and, and, and I know you, you've lived in Portugal, haven't you? Yeah. You've been, yeah, so you, the, the learning a new language and being exposed to it and things. But is this, is this idea that we, you know, from naught to to three almost, children are sponges, right? Yeah. We don't need to tell them, you know, get up and and walk. We don't need to give them rewards, yeah. stickers to stand up and walk, right? They yeah. they do it because because they look at the world around them and they go, I need this and I need this and you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. So there's a part of me that more and more as I'm having conversations with flourishing education with people who do like things like unschooling and you know and online learning, all those things. I just think, well, maybe it's because in our education settings, as in our schools, because again, you know, I'll talk about education and schooling with you in a minute yeah. as, as well. But this notion that maybe if we trusted our kids a bit more. Like you were saying, you know, literacy, the facts, the sheer fact that 
you need to be able to read and write to be able to um, live in the world. We wired to fit in the yeah. world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think that you know there's something there in our education system that we're not trusting and allowing our kids to? Why? Well, yeah. I mean, I wonder if, um, and I think this goes for just well both schools and also I think society and it's something that I think lockdown has certainly changed in, in my house um but I think we're often a little bit worried about our kids being bored and not stimulated and I think that that um doesn't sometimes a bit of boredom really helps <laughs> really helps to broaden out so my daughter um I worked time my husband did some of the um schooling uh much to my much to my sadness actually because I'd have really liked to be the home tutor as it's a whole dream of mine but never mind you know that's another podcast <laughs> anyway um yeah so he took it on but there were lots of times where she wasn't being schooled or being entertained and she had to make her own kind of entertainment and what grew out of that was an amazing imagination and actually a real interest in structures and buildings. She's never had that, we've never seen that before in her. I mean, she's got Lego and she's always kind of built stuff, but this was more, I'm gonna make stuff out of cardboard boxes and construct things. And I wonder if she'd had normal schooling and then we'd have the summer holidays where we do activities, go to the beach, go to the zoo, we go somewhere. Um, and we come home, then we're tired and we may watch a film, whether she'd have the space to look at what interests her. And hopefully that will continue. Now we know it's there, it's something that we can kind of help her continue and, and give space for. Um, but I think we don't give space very often to our kids' interests. We fill it with, we think you might like gymnastics, so go to gymnastics, or actually we're really good at that, so go and do this. Um, and we fill the space, don't we, with what we think they want to do as opposed to the other way around. Um, and I think schools are timetabled to the max. Every single minute is some kind of learning experience or it's some kind of imparting of knowledge. Um, and they don't have that time to explore something else apart from playtime. So. And the boys always roll their eyes because when they say I'm bored they go great from boredom comes creativity okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is yeah. you get bored and you're right and I think you know so this conversation we had about systems and you know, we as parents also contribute. So it's not just the schools and you're right, the schools are completely maxed out because there's so much knowledge that needs Content, to be yeah. covered for those exams that yeah. actually there's no space for anything else, right? Yeah. But we as parents also believe that we have to structure our kids' life. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And although I do, agree that routine a lot of kids especially those with um special educational needs or um or trauma need routine they have to have it to feel safe and i think that um i think we spoke about it on the last one about maslow's hierarchy the yeah. fact that you've got to get those bases before you can start thinking of you know creativity and, and and becoming your own person and stuff you have to make sure you've got safety food and all of those basic building blocks but once they're in place you know to have that opportunity to creatively explore explore in art something you want to do or in PE something that interests you um I think we're losing that a bit for the kids we're directing constantly where they should be and what they should be doing um, because we need outcomes mm -hmm. and it's all driven by an outcome and a result as opposed to the journey and looking yes. at stuff on the way mm -hmm. and not necessarily having a finished product. And I think 
so that's a nice segue into that sort of notion of what our society fosters and you know the the hedonic treadmill and stepping on the treadmill yeah. like you were saying the you know all the trappings that comes with earning a good job and you know all of those yeah. things that, like, yeah measures of success and I mean I don't know I wonder what your views are on that but it's this notion that is that also impacting hugely no so I I'm in higher education and there's loads of talks about how neoliberalism is generating in education the marketization of education yeah. um, in a way that for me it shouldn't be yeah so for me education should not be at, um, I'm sorry to those neoliberals who are listening to us um you know not that but anything again sort of trying to create an equitable society and you know providing for everyone that's yeah. not what I'm saying you know so opening the market and having competition might be healthy mm. but to me when I look at where we're at in terms of society I don't think we've removed any inequalities if anything else was created more yeah um, I mean I, I don't know whether you, you should flip that on its head a little bit and think actually if we valued the work that um you know a laborer does in the same way that we value somebody with a master's or if we valued nurses and their experience and their education in the same way that we value a doctor's surgeons um we wouldn't have that constant drive to well, the only success I can achieve is by doing well at school and then doing well at uni and then getting a good job. Because actually, when you say, you know, if you take pride in your job as um, working in a shop, if you take pride in that and you do a good job, you should be lauded. And that should be considered a great career for anybody, any, any level of education because actually it's about the job that you're doing. And, and so I think that, you know, um, I think everybody should have the opportunity to go to university if yeah. they want to, and that they have, you know, an interest that they need to pursue, not necessarily a career, but an interest in a certain area, then that's what university should be for. It should be deeper exploration of something that you find interesting, not necessarily lead to a job um, and that's a mind uh, a kind of change in my worldview that's happened over the last few years and I probably wouldn't have said that five years ago had you talked to me then um, but I think we just undervalue so many jobs that should be of value and going back to my daughter who has an interest in building we've been really careful to say you know not oh well what about being an architect or what about being a surveyor not going well you could do this but thinking well actually if you like construction then think about what job you could do in construction if that's the bit she likes if she likes the building why push her to the intellectual end of the career why not think well actually you know if that's what you like doing then that's what you should pursue and I think it's, it's such a shift in our beliefs and values I, and you and I are the same way that I grew with you. So I had this summer, I had this conversation with my sister um, because when I go back home to France, the first question I ask is, how are the boys doing at school? That's the first question. They yeah. Are they good at school? Yeah. What like that defines the whole of my child? <laughs> and so my sister was like, why do you get upset? By that it's not that I get upset I just I don't want my children to be just solely defined by yeah. how intellectual or you know academic is what I, I like to call it yeah how academic they are because yeah. because you know going back to that to, to that Jim so my niece is, is studying law or studied law up to a master's she's now trying to become a judge as well as training to be director of prisons yeah and my nephew's just or in the army right okay um and when my sister says oh my niece 
my my daughter's doing like law and trying to be a judge and then like uh and and you go oh well he's he's in, he's in the army oh. right right and yeah. sort of like do you really notice that difference mm. and and i think it's so ingrained mm. in society that i'm not sure how we should think no i mean i think um it's interesting because i think both you and i uh continue to see further kind of academic work or we're doing courses or we're constantly learning um, and whether that's you know so our positions um, are, pre are pretty middle class I would say if you're talking about class yeah. and and really privileged yeah, you know absolutely um, <laughs> whether part of and when I was a, a single parent uh, raising my daughter at 20 I was in a very, very different position. And then it was all about getting a job and doing something that earned money. Now I'm earning money. Do I have more of a, the luxury of being able to look and think, well, actually, you know, my, my children could pursue something that interests them as opposed to you need to get a job because your child needs to eat. So I do wonder about that sometimes about my privilege has risen to the point where actually I can be a bit more reflective about my children and, and what they're doing and because it's not hand to mouth and, and, and I'm very aware that there are so many parents and children that don't have the privilege of being able right. to look like we can now um, at, at their children at their situations and see a way forward that doesn't mean getting a job and earning money and trying to just yeah. keep going yeah absolutely but that goes back to valuing other jobs and actually valuing the people in them and and just investing in the people uh you know and giving them if they need it giving them the support in order to pursue or progress you know yeah and I think this, this again, is sort of like such a, a beautiful link to to the next bit, which is, you know, one of the things I'm I'm trying to do with flourishing education is this notion that actually I feel that the parents who need the most my book are not yeah. people like you. Yeah, it's people who um, have never been exposed to any parenting tips and sort of like really struggling. So mm. a huge part of what I want to do next is actually trying to find a way to reach people who would need it the most. Um, and and it, you're right, we, we still need to live and we still need money to, to yeah. function in society. But um, at the moment in the car when I go to work or I walk the dog, I'm listening to uh, Darren Brown's book, uh, Happy. Oh, okay. Really recommend yeah. it you know, to you on our listeners. And he actually talks, I've, I've seen that in, in research, in my research, but actually um, there's research that shows that actually if you get to a certain level financially, mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember, I think in the UK it's something around 38,000 or 40,000 pounds a year. If you go be at that level, mm if you go higher you're not happier yeah okay so is that certain but nobody tells you that you yes just society and actually if you look at on tv what you see is the world of stars and celebrities yeah. and quick like get a quick sort of stardom so i mean i think you know we've always wanted to um we've always coveted what other people have i don't think that's anything new but you know, the amount of um, information that young people have presented through social media, for example, of other people's lives and um, interiors and clothes and just just everything is on display, isn't it? Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's no surprise that young people think it's relatively easy to get that. Um, I mean, I, I, I do wonder uh, also about the um the success you know we we're talking about success rates and things like that and I think a lot of um schools don't deal with failure very well and and don't scaffold that kind of failure in in the right way or respect it 
Um, so when young people leave and have to get jobs and don't realize about money and you know will want the things and get them on credit cards as opposed to knowing you know that the value of money um it 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 can you know come as a real hard shock I know it did to a lot of my friends and things when I was growing up even and we didn't have those such big influences I mean we had magazines didn't we and things that you'd see other people's lives and want um certain trappings um but yeah I just I wonder if it's a kind of you know, you're not connecting the dots between earning that money and then getting that stuff. Um, I heard somebody else on a podcast actually saying about um, a lesson that her dad had taught her. It was, I can't remember her last name. She hosts a program on Channel 4 over lunchtime. Stephanie. Um, but she was saying that her dad had taught her to add the um, tax to any item that she wants to buy. So if there's a pair of trainers for hundred quid, she'd end up having to add 20% on that. And then she'd know that's how much she'd have to earn in order to afford those trainers. And I thought, oh, I've never thought about things in that way, but actually it really brings home the amount you need to, uh, yeah, be earning before you can actually afford these things, as opposed to seeing your bank balance when you've had your wages in there and then going, well, I'm rich, I can surely afford all of this stuff. Um, so yeah, putting kind of connecting different things, I think is quite difficult for, for young people to do when all they see is the outcomes and the, you know, the, the nice stuff. And the goals. And, and, and what's really interesting also is that I was recently talking to someone for the book again, book um who does who thinks of careers in schools with like employers yeah one of the things that i'm also asking is like not only what happens to that five-year-old but if the idea of the schooling system is to take them to an end bit which is mm. an employer system have we spoken to employers about what they need yes and then take it back down yeah you know not at all <laughs> And, and you know, going back to what we said, you, you were saying earlier on about the curriculum being crammed. For me, there's so much, you know, the more I look into this, I just think, and, and you know, don't get me wrong to those friends of, and people who are listening to this podcast, like you, who are teachers, I am not having a go mm. at you. I'm a teacher myself. I know what it's like to be part of that system. So please don't take it as a criticism of you as individuals. I know all too well how hard you work and how much effort you put in. But to me, it's all this knowledge. So we focus on knowing and knowledge. Yeah. And not skills. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a definite um, Ofsted backed, government backed drive. It's not that I don't think it's the teachers in the classrooms. Um, I mean, there are lots actually um, that do agree with that um, approach to education, um, but it is a very, it is a very strong voice out there at the moment that, you know, what we do as teachers is provide knowledge and that's it. We're not there to do all the other stuff. They are there to learn. Um, and what they're learning is the content and that's it. My experience having, you know, being a um, SEN specialist is that's all well and good, but many learners haven't got the skills yet and they still haven't got the skills when they get to GCSE even. So trying to kind of fill them with content doesn't work if they've got no way of processing it. Um, and I think going back to your question on kind of, um, you know, seeking fame, I guess we don't give learners enough ownership over their own education. We don't allow them. I know um, my eldest, I once wanted her to bring her English book home um, because she found it very, very hard to, um, she used to make notes all the time. And when she'd have to do a piece of homework, she wanted those notes to do the homework. But the teacher, because she'd experienced so many kids losing their books, refused to let anyone take their book home and who owns that book whose work is in that yeah. book is it the teachers and I understand the teacher and the fact how frustrating it is if 
the kid, two, three kids keep losing their books. You have to keep that work and all of that. But should that be, you know, the measure of the, the class mm -hmm. and, and what you do? Who owns the information in that book? Is it for the teacher in the school or is it the pupils? And often schools will keep examples of books. You know, they will take a sample. And again, I totally understand that, but really we should be taking photos of those and they're giving the work. If they don't own that, they'll never own it. They'll never own their learning and they'll just end up maybe with qualifications, but not really understanding what they are or how they're going to help them in, in life. Um, I think I feel the same about homework. You know, who are you doing the homework for? Who do we fill out the reading records for? Is it for my daughter or is it for the teacher? Is it for me? I don't think it's for me, but probably not for my daughter. So why am I doing it, you know? Um, and I'm more than happy to support teachers. who They need some of this information because they're asked for it and they have to demonstrate it and all of that kind of stuff. But it maybe could be communicated differently. And actually it could be a shared experience. Um, more than happy to help teachers with their reams and reams of evidence they need to create. But it could be shared perhaps a bit mostly. And actually I, I wrote in the book and I just said, take it as read that needs reading. Yeah. <laughs> Times five. <laughs> Times five yeah. and more because he's actually found what he likes. Yeah. And what you were just saying, I, I noted two things here mm. to, to discuss with you. You know, you're talking about you're talking about taking responsibility for, yeah. for their learning. But there's something about when you are intrinsically motivated, right? Yeah. You so for those who don't understand intrinsic and extrinsic, in extrinsic motivation, this of I'm doing something because I want to do it as opposed to yes. extrinsic because I can see there's value there and then it's going to get me something or even worse it's like I get a sticker if I'm a good girl and yes. I get punished if I'm a naughty girl for example which is the extreme of extrinsic yep. right when we are intrinsically motivated and I again I use that example for for my own life okay I work full-time got two kids I wrote two books in two years working full-time because I was passionate and wanted yeah. my books out okay nobody got a whip out and said off you go and sit down in front of your computer yeah that meant giving up quality times of my husband my boys and I'm so grateful for them you know for for giving me that space yeah and I'm very proud of what I've achieved mm. But to me, when I look at the current system, I don't think we're encouraging that. Do, do you agree with that? I, I don't think there's the, the flex in order to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, um, yeah, there, there isn't. There isn't the flexibility in order to kind of think, okay, this is something you're interested in. Let's support it and do something about it and, and really work with it because it does go, you know, it does go back to the curriculum being just so crowded um, with knowledge on all sorts of things, but perhaps, you know, not always the right things. Um, because I think uh, if you asked an employer, um, they're looking for those soft skills. They're looking for the creatives and the innovators, um, the people that can work in a team, the people that are self-motivated. I mean, you know, how we kind of encourage that self-motivation um, can be a real battle as a, as a parent if the, you know, if the task or is not considered engaging or interesting to the pupil. I mean, there's a whole argument about work being engaging on Twitter between teachers, the fact that um, work, you know, it doesn't need to be engaging necessarily because you are imparting knowledge and therefore it doesn't have to be a fun lesson. It, you know, they need to just get that information in uh, some way. <laughs> I, 
that doesn't fit well with me. No, and there's a big question about engagement. And I think there is a real difference between, you know, um, certain schools of thinking around engagement and others. Um, I think I'm probably in the camp that says you find out what uh, really motivates that learner mm. and you work from that point as opposed to your perceived point of interest as a teacher. Um, and I think that that, you know, the, the whole development of the black curriculum, you know, I think that that is, will engage lots of learners that maybe haven't been able to engage with Henry VIII in World War II because they don't see any representations of themselves. And um, those developments are not about bringing, you know, more interest it's saying actually I'm looking at my pupils and thinking well what's going to engage you um my daughter for example if you can find you know examples of um women doing construction would really engage her wouldn't it it would help to ignite an interest in something and then she might write about it um whereas if you continue to show her images of men a successful men doing those jobs she might start to think it's not for her the stereotypes and the, all, the, all the things that buy yeah. and conscious bias yeah based another podcast right yes yeah. <laughs> um but you know when you were talking about three things from like the soft skills and that you know so we know that employers want able to work in a team collaborate well and work well together mm. and I also wrote about social engagement and to me the current curriculum is not in, is not engaging any of that so you know going back to the initial conversation about we live in a world that is not only hiding old people but also like literally much more individualistic yeah. and much more yeah. like I often say to my students, look, you're just doing a lot of navel gazing. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But when you're navel gazing, like me, myself, and I, what you're forgetting to do, and, and you can all do it, look up for your navel, and then, then look up and realize there's a big wild world out there yeah. with loads of people who are completely different from us. It's a massive shift, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is massively. Um, and I, I was listening to, um, it was about the environment, but it does kind of relate to it. Um, and I wrote the name down because I'm rubbish at names. Um, Satish Kumar um, is a really interesting guy. He has a retreat in Devon, I think. And, um, but what he said, and he said it again and again and again, and, and luckily it, it did stick in my sieve of a memory, was if you you think global but you act local so everybody should be able to think that they are part of the world they but you know just a you know an organism just like a, an animal is or a tree is and we're part of the earth but look locally so think about it's around you that you can connect with and um, engage shops people and um, communities and just be able to kind of um, and you know your community could be your school community it could be your family as well as where you work or where you live but really thinking about those people and how you can connect with them and what they can do you know and what you can do for them rather than looking out at um examples in America of somebody living their life or trying to connect um, other people think locally first uh, sorry act locally but think globally stuck with me actually. I like that yeah that's really beautiful and it, it generates then with the local you know if I think of my well-being hat on yeah. we know for example that um some of the well-being factors are sense of belonging and you know positive relationships yes. and those are far more difficult to foster if you do it online and obviously with COVID currently it's harder yeah. right but yeah. so we know that from that positive you know locally like we are recording this podcast 
I would say safety social media yes. sound yeah. in my house vocally you know and um so that's a, that I love that mm. but I, you know I think there are loads of opportunities and I think the young people and their activism recently has shown how they're thinking they're thinking globally but they're acting locally and they're coming together and doing things um and you know supporting that activism in young people gives me hope for the future that actually you know when when our time has passed the young people are considered what is valuable to them and how they can do it together um, and that consumerism and looking at what you can get um, is not as important or is is kind of losing its grip slightly on our young people and they are starting to think about collectivism and, and working together and less about individualism. Yeah. I hope so. I, I agree. And and you know, the research for the book, How to Grow Grown Up, clearly showed me that these young people are woke. They care yeah. and they care deeply and they're far from like snowflakes. They're really, yeah. really involved. And I think what's what they're finding, what's generating all that stress and anxiety for them is actually because what they are seeing reflected back at them is a society that is, you know, an earth that's polluted, that, yeah. you know, um, you know, Brexit, that some of them, you know, like some of my students were just not old enough to vote yeah. and feel that, that decisions have been made, made for their future that yeah. will affect them greatly. Um, and that has made them not despondent. It's made them even more driven yeah. to have a say. But like you say, in a, in a more local sort of organised yeah. way. So I agree. I would agree in the code mm. with that. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that, that that could start in schools and, you know, and school councils. I think that they are really valuable and they should be um have a much higher standing in schools um getting student voice and being able to listen to what they have to say about their education um is far more important than you know what i have to say as a parent or um because they're the ones that will be they they always tell the truth <laughs> they you know they never mince their words they're always very very straightforward and um, I think you can learn a huge amount if we listen to younger people a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And but that, but again, that requires a shift from us it as adults. Yeah. Because it feeds into the notion, and as a parent, I've had that really, really challenged with, with me, particularly with my 13-year-old now. Um, because I think, and I, I don't know, you know, correct me if I if you think I'm wrong, but I think that we we grew up with this notion that children have to be seen and not yeah. heard and not yeah. as much as what our parents had to go through and that in the same way that the the, the schooling system believes the, the the learning process is you're an empty vessel and yeah. they've got to fill you up we also if we're truly honest we also feel that we as parents know best yes and that we can tell them what's good for them and what's yeah. not good for them yeah. rather than again trusting that yeah, yeah, they've got yeah I think I think it is good it does go back to that trust element but I think it also um it's about taking a step back and I think knowing you know we know or we feel we know a lot about kind of education and and how people learn and all of that kind of stuff um, but it's almost taking a step back and holding on to that knowledge and then just hearing what other people have to say. Um, I went to a conference this week, well, virtually, um, by Teach for All, who are a great um, global network of teachers. Um, and what really struck me was they had their alumni, their young teachers, uh, hosting the whole thing. The CEO came on and did one speech, but throughout it was the young people hosting all the interviews were students interviewing the CEOs one one interviewed Malala and they didn't take so teach for all didn't think oh well, actually we're in the high positions we should be in control of this they said no we're about the empowering students so that's what we need to do 
and so that's what they did and I, I just think that schools could shift the system a bit to value that input from young people and move it so that it becomes senior leadership level as opposed to okay well we control this bit of the narrative um, and we get the opinions of children or young people and then we fill it and we repackage it and then we tell the senior leadership team what they said that's not empowering the learner that's kind of saying okay you're giving me what you need but what I need um thanks very much and you should have the kudos of being on this school council it, sh it should have parity you should be getting young people on you know and um I mentioned um being on the parish council and one of the things I'd be passionate about is getting some young councillors to come along and to be part of that and and to value and they'll be nervous and they'll be worried because they won't have ever felt that their voice fits in that environment and it's up to us the ones that kind of are able to make it comfortable for them and to recognize that and so I think um yeah I think it all comes back down to where you put the value on a child's voice and and I have to say, from for myself, it's taken me a bit of time to just accept that. Yeah. So since doing the research for how to grow a grown up, I've really shifted my approach as a as a leader right. in higher education. Because before, I have to. I'm I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not sure I believed in that they can tell me how. You know, I used to view it as how are they going to tell me how to do my job yes which is a defense mechanism yeah 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 yeah, yeah. whereas now I'm like oh god I can learn so much from you yeah. and actually you know I, I had a really the most powerful conversation with two young people on the podcast and you know on focus groups because I was wanted to talk to them you know they were saying no offense Fabian, but when you come in and tell me to look after my mental health you're, you know, didn't say you're 46, but you know, like they look at me and they think middle-aged white woman, okay, mum, mumsy type. Yeah. Okay. And what do you know about my life? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're right. I don't know what their life is like because I'm not a teenager. No, that's right. You know, and so they may listen to some of the things that I say. But it's how you present it first. Mm. And also, actually, what has more impact is then when one or two or three of them suddenly go, right, okay, this is what I heard from Fabian and I'm sharing with you. Yes. This is how you can look after yourself. This yeah. is how, yeah. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you're, the information that you're giving isn't valuable, mm. worthy, or coming from a point of education. It just means that actually, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's how your message is received, isn't it? And if we have no um, perception of that, uh, you know, you might tell me something or explain something to me and I'll hear something completely different um, and go and you'll be there thinking, oh, she's gone away with the right idea because I told her, whereas I've gone away with something, you know, completely different. But I, and I think being aware of how things are perceived by other people um, and questioning that and talking through it doesn't mean that I'll feel like I've not done a good job um, or that my knowledge is, you know, on shaky ground or anything, um, because you've just explored an area that, you know, and, and come to a mutual understanding. Does that, does that make I, sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Also, you know, so I'm trained in NLP and they say the result of your of the communication is how well you've communicated. Yeah. So it's, you know, you were saying before we started the recording, we were talking together and I was saying to you, I greatly believe that we all come in life with our values, beliefs, facts, yeah. experiences. So I often use the 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 fact that I'm French living in, in the UK. And so my views of the British system is very different from Jason who's born and bred in Bristol right immediately not such a bit but he's in France for the and stuff but his views are very much more British than what I 
Um, and, and so therefore that would shape how I view things and how I receive what you're giving me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and how would you check with people that they've understood what you said? I mean, I think, you know, you have to, again, or not understood if it's even like how they've received what your message is being received, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's quite difficult as a teacher, but it is, again, it's just all based on um, that communication, isn't it? And listening and getting an opportunity to hear back what the learner has understood from what you've said. Um, I mean, we do a lot of work actually um, about vocabulary and really knowing the level of vocabulary that your learner has and not assuming that they've got the same cultural capital as you. So if I used, I, I think I, I very often use like um, idioms and sayings that are very English based. And when I'd work with learners on the autistic spectrum, you know, they would look at me really quizzically and be like, you know, why are you talking about sheep's um, pigs flying or whatever, you know, saying I was using mm -hmm. because um, they don't connect with that language. So they lose entirely what I'm saying. Um, so it's being, a, you know, it's being really mindful of who you're talking to um, and the language that you use with them um, and also then hearing back what you've said and I think sometimes that's quite hard for a teacher because we all get on that train of I'm going to tell you everything I'm, you know and I'm really passionate about my subject and I'm going to talk you through this and then to hear kind of I don't get it you know and you kind of well, I think that was a very good well-structured thing that I've just taught you and why are you not getting it and it might not be that you haven't um, explained it well enough it might just be that they have no experience of it starting point is so different from theirs that if you don't know that starting point yes you just don't connect no, they don't relate to no it so no it's a completely foreign sort of concept for them and, and mm. therefore you know it goes back to that intrinsic motivation really like why should i care exactly accepting there's one last thing i wanted to talk to you about because yeah. we mentioned it off, but yeah um, is that notion of um, allowing young people to, or giving young people too much independence. So wanting our young people to be independent. Yeah. Which is really interesting to come back around to that because we've talked a lot about ownership, haven't we? Which you know, would be an independence thing. Um, but I think and we touched a little bit on the individualistic kind of society that we're we're living in um but i think that independence as a as a that that we strive for has just again just become become quite skewed in our minds and on the reverse of it dependence is considered you know something that you do if you're ill or if you're old, or if you've been injured in some way, rather than uh, being an important bit of life that happens to everybody. Um, and I think I, I wrote a blog recently, I gave the example of, uh, you know, as you get older, that dependency becomes a burden, as opposed to when you're a baby and you start taking your first steps, it's, everyone celebrates it. And I think you know, we need to shift the, the ideas of independence and dependence and, and see them both again in the same light as opposed to one's good, one isn't. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, when you have a baby and you often will hear um, people say, oh, when, you know, when you're going to get back to your own self, or, you know, working on getting your body back and, and lots of mums will be kind of desperate to get their independence back and, um, go out for a drink like they used to with the girls or what have you but you've changed entirely your body has changed completely won't be the same just like you know your body is the same the next day after you had a run because your muscles are quite different so that that idea that you have to constantly be gaining that independence from everyone and everything I just think it's it's really damaging especially especially for women um, and to feel dependent 
is to feel reliant, um, completely, you know, devoid of responsibility, being dependent. We should, um, yeah, we, you know, it should be something that isn't considered bad. And celebrated in that full circle. This is what Mary Bateson says, right? She comes back to dependence. Yes. And that going back to your little friend, yeah. that we are all dependent, we depend on each other and yeah. our interactions in in any any way, shape, or form, that any exchange depends on you being willing to interact yeah. and being willing to interact with and are we coming at it from a cooperative, collaborative way? Or are we looking at it from my way, my true future? Yes. I want my yes. way. Exactly. My way or the highway. Yeah. It's not quite the same thing. It's give or take rather than give and take. And, a, you know, a, a mutual agreement around that. It's not necessarily, always, um, well, if I'm doing my thing, then you must stop your thing and vice versa. Beautiful. So to wrap up, you know, I always ask my guests for um, one or two things that they take from this conversation. What would it be for you for this conversation today? I think we've covered loads. I think we, I think we've covered. We have. Uh, I guess it, it's it's shifting your perspective on some truths or worldviews that you've held and not feeling that that's kind of a um, judgment on the worldview that you hold, but it's just a reevaluation of it. And to think, and to, like you were saying about stepping back and just looking and thinking, where, where was that established? My opinion on independence, for example. Um, okay, so maybe I could look at it in a slightly different view. Now I've listened to this podcast. Um, and so, yeah, shifting perspective, but not judging yourself on the world news that you've held, um, because I've talked, everything can change and, and things do change and evolve. And yeah, just, just being kind to yourself if you feel that you've heard something that doesn't resonate or that kind of um, concerns you in any way, um, just stepping back. You're welcome. Yeah, it's been great. And we're like bang on school time. I'm going to have to race around. <laughs> Thank you so much. Lovely. flourishing.